By 3.30 the next morning on the 23rd, I heard from Simon's girlfriend that the police, after a shootout with Simon and, and ultimately killing him, had found my three dead daughters in the back of it, the cab of his truck. And that's how I found out that my children were murdered. Welcome back to another episode of Unjustly. My name is Sandy and this is my co-host Stephanie. Hi everyone. Hope everyone's having a decent new year so far, even though it started a little bit rough. Uh, this is my first episode since the winter break we took off and I'm excited to be bringing you new stories and cases for 2021. Sandy's a, an optimist. Rough is an understatement. <laughs> To the first couple days of the year. <laughs> you know, we had a good like five days. <laughs> sure. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, we do have a long list of cases and topics that we plan on covering this year, but if there's something specific you all want added to the list, please send us a message on social media under unjustly podcast or email unjustly podcast at gmail.com. Are you ready for today's case? Let's get started. Okay. Uh, so I'm covering a true crime case that went up to the Supreme Court, but it's not the murderer who's on trial. It's the city of Castle Rock, Colorado. This is a case of Castle Rock v. Gonzalez. So a friend of mine, John, brought this case to my attention, and I couldn't believe that I had not heard of it before, um, but it is an extremely sad case that could have been prevented had the police taken it serious. So we will also be diving into qualified immunity for law enforcement and constitutional rights of victims. My sources came from Wikipedia, an article in the Desert News, two articles in the ACLU website, one of them written by Lenora Lapidus, an article called Home Truth on NBC News by Christina Puga, and I got some of the legal information from a podcast called The 5-4, um, and that one's a little, it's fun to listen to. I'm actually addicted <laughs> to it now, um, but their intro is The 5-4 Podcast, a podcast that talks about where the Supreme Court sucks, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it basically just goes through a lot of different Supreme Court cases or decisions mm -hmm. that basically it's like, what the heck were yeah. you guys thinking? Um, so this is one of their cases, and it's a group of lawyers who does it. Um, so they had all the legal stuff. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure that all the information that I have was correct. So Jessica Gonzalez, a Native American and Latina living in Colorado, met Simon Gonzalez while they were attending high school. In 1990, Simon and Jessica were married. Jessica had a son, Jesse, from a previous relationship, but after the marriage, Jessica and Simon would go on to have three daughters of their own, Rebecca, Catherine, and Leslie. The three girls were described as being three peas in a pod and did everything together. The relationship with Simon, however, was extremely toxic from the start. Simon was psychologically abusive, controlling, and had continuous erratic behavior. Simon first moved Jessica and her son away from family and any support system, which is usually you kind know, of like the first step, really. The first step, yeah. Uh, he then took control of all money and didn't allow Jessica to have any access to it. She wasn't even allowed to have a bank card. That's just crazy how you even get to that point. I can't imagine Tim ever being like, fork over your money and yeah. your paychecks and all of your cards. Like, what? Mm -hmm. how, you got like, nothing. Yeah. It's usually very slow. 
right? It's Mm -hmm. usually like one thing and then a little time passes and then another thing. And it's just like a gradual thing. And then all of a sudden someone finds themselves in this this complete controlling situation. They have no control over anything. It's really sad. As the years passed, Simon's behavior became more unpredictable and violent. He was distancing himself from Jessica and the kids while continuing to want to control them. Jessica says that Simon would break the children's toys and harshly discipline them. But after Simon became heavily involved with drugs, he also began threatening to kidnap the children. He would drive recklessly, exhibit suicidal behavior, and abuse Jessica verbally, physically, and sexually. One time, Jessica went to the garage and found Simon with a noose around his neck, threatening to kill himself. The children were all there watching. As Jessica tried to keep Simon from hanging himself, their daughter Leslie called the police. Jessica finally decided that enough was enough, and she separated from Simon in 1999, after being married for almost a decade. At the time, Rebecca was 9, Catherine was 8, and Leslie was 6. But as you can imagine, the separation angered Simon, and his scary behavior continued. He would stalk Jessica at her house and other places she went. He would show up at her job and would call her phone at all hours of the day and night. The children were afraid of Simon and did not want to be around him. I mean, who would? Yeah, no, no one should be around (laughs) him. No one should, yeah. So in May 1999, Jessica was granted a temporary restraining order that required Simon to stay at least 100 yards away from Jessica and the children. The only time Simon was allowed to see the children was during his specific scheduled time with them every other weekend. Jessica was told by the judge to keep the order with her at all times and that the order in Colorado law required that police shall use every reasonable means to enforce this restraining order and to arrest Simon if he violated the order. Jessica states that having the order initially reduced her anxiety, but it was immediately apparent that Simon was not going to be deterred from it. One day, Simon broke into Jessica's house, stole her jewelry, changed the locks on her doors, and loosened (laughs) her house's water valves, which caused a flood on the entire street. Oh my god. Insane. When Jessica reported this to the Castle Rock Police Department, they initially ignored her calls. When they finally responded, not only were the police dismissive of the situation, they actually scolded Jessica for calling them. (laughs) Jessica states that this concerned her because it made her wonder what would happen if an emergency were to ever happen in the future. Were they, sorry, were they ignoring her because... They didn't were think they it just was being dismissing her or were they just like, oh God, I've had enough of her. Like, I don't want to take her call. It was a bit of both. Jesus. Mm-hmm. They just didn't think it was like an emergency or, you know, it's a domestic dispute yeah. in their eyes. So they don't think it's like something that needs to be dealt with right away. Um, but unfortunately, Jessica would find out soon enough just what would happen when an emergency does happen. Hmm. In a three month span, Simon had at least seven run ins with law enforcement. One including trespassing and another was for road rage uh, while his daughters were in the truck with him. He just doesn't care. No. So a month after the temporary restraining order was granted, a judge made it permanent in June 1999. But less than three weeks later, Simon would violate the restraining order again. So before we go forward with the story, I want to point out that at the time... Colorado had adopted the Violence Against Women Act. Uh, It was a law passed by Clinton in 1994, which Joe Biden helped co-sponsor when Mm -hmm. he was a senator. And it was created in order to bring awareness and to allocate funds for the purpose of protecting women, children, and providing educational programs to help prevent domestic violence. 
It also discusses the importance of upholding restraining orders and gives guidance to law enforcement on how to deal with domestic violence issues. So keep that in mind as we go forward with the story. (laughs) On June 22nd, 1999, Rebecca, Catherine, and Leslie wanted to play outside in the front yard as they did often and would always check in with their mother every hour. When they missed a check-in, Jessica realized they were gone and immediately suspected that Simon had kidnapped the girls. Oh, no. And in fact, he had done just that. Jessica called the police to let them know of her suspicion. The police said that it was okay that Simon took the girls because he's their father. Oh. Yeah. Okay. But Jessica said, no, it is not okay. Here's a restraining order saying it's not okay and I'm in fear for my children's lives. She begged the police to help her find her children, and she read off the details of the restraining order that say he can only have them during his designated time and, quote, to use every reasonable effort to protect the children to prevent violence. That's what it says directly on the restraining order. Mm -hmm. Yet police dismissed Jessica's urgency and said that there was nothing that they could do as Simon was still their father. They continued to treat the situation as just a domestic dispute that they needed to work out amongst themselves. The police advised Jessica to wait a few hours before calling them back to see if Simon returns the children. Mm, My God. Mm -hmm. Soon after, Simon's girlfriend called Jessica with concerns about Simon because he had called her and was threatening to drive off a cliff. Oh. So at this point, Jessica is in a panic. Rightfully so. I just don't. I don't get this guy. I don't get it. Like, what does he want out of all of this? Just to con- So he has a girlfriend, mm-hmm. but he also wants to continue, like, exerting his control over the his ex-wife and the children. Ex-wife and his mm-hmm. children. Like, for what? Mm-hmm. Eventually, though, at 8.30 p.m., Jessica is finally able to get a hold of Simon, who informs her that he's with the children at an amusement park in Denver, which was about 40 minutes away from Castle Rock. So now we have a location mm-hmm. of where he's at. Uh, So Jessica calls the police to give them Simon's location uh, so they can help her get the girls back. But to her surprise, the police told her there was nothing they could do because Denver was outside of their jurisdiction. Jessica begged them to put out an Amber Alert or call the Denver police to have them handle it. But the officer refused and stated, quote, at least, you know, the children are with their father. That's the worst thing. Yeah. I don't want them to be with their father. And again, she was told to wait a few hours before calling back. Because they assumed he would just bring them back. At 10 p.m., Jessica calls the police again to report them missing and explain the restraining order again. The dispatcher told Jessica that she was being a little ridiculous. Oh, my goodness. She literally said this. Jessica is told to wait longer to see if Simon eventually drops off the girls. So this is at 10 p.m. already. Um, There's no need for a visitation to be this late, Mm -hmm. especially for a parent with this type of history. And if they're not staying the night with that parent, these are young children and it's way past their bedtime. So for police to still think that nothing is out of the ordinary Mm -hmm. right now um, in a situation where a restraining order is involved is extremely alarming. Yeah. So at midnight, Jessica drives to Simon's home to see if they are there, but no one is home. She calls police to let them know that it's midnight, the girls have not been returned, and they are not at Simon's home. We are now seven hours into this fiasco uh, since the first call was made to the police. Seven hours. I I literally can't even, with my own dog, if my dog was missing for an hour, I'd be losing my mind. Anxiety. I can't imagine what it would be like for your actual children. For seven hours. Especially when you've seen what he's capable Mm -hmm. of and what Mm -hmm. he threatens to do. And Oh, God. Um, The dispatcher, though, wasn't even aware that this incident was brought to the police's attention. So they weren't communicating with each other that anything was even going on. They were just like dismissing it and not even Mm -hmm. writing it up. 
So the dispatcher states that she will send out a police officer to Jessica to gather information. But police officers never arrived. Oh, goodness. Mm -hmm. So taking matters into her own hands again, she Mm -hmm. drives to the police station with the restraining order in hand. Again, Jessica was told to go home and wait for her children. That officer who she spoke to um, immediately took like a two-hour break and did not inform anyone of the situation, and Jessica was never contacted by anybody. Cool. Yeah. So she's coming to the police station like, here's my restraining order. You need to help me. It's past midnight already. And he's like, okay, we'll see what we can do. And he doesn't do anything. And I'm he going leaves. on my break. Be back. Yeah. Overall, in the course of about 10 hours now, Jessica ended up making seven phone calls to the police station and made two in-person visits begging for help to protect her children, as it said in the restraining order. And each time Jessica was dismissed and sometimes even scolded for bothering them. Jessica couldn't do anything but wait in agony. At 3.20 a.m., Simon shows up at the police station. He gets out of the car and starts shooting into the building with a semi-automatic gun he had bought that day. Police returned fire and sprayed him and his entire truck with bullets. Simon was killed instantly. After a search of the truck, police discovered the bodies of three little girls. Mm -hmm. An autopsy later revealed that Rebecca, age 10, Catherine, age 8, and Leslie, age 7, were each shot in the head at close range. However, their bodies were also riddled with bullet holes from the shootout with police. So he had killed them before? Mm -hmm. It was also revealed Simon most likely killed the three girls after leaving the amusement park and had driven around for a few hours with the dead bodies in the car. Oh my god. It was also later discovered that the little girls had waited in the truck while their father had gone into the store to purchase the gun he would use to kill them. Oh, no. Which, quick side note, I'm surprised he was able to purchase and receive a gun within the same day, even though he had a restraining order on his record. That's not um, even long enough to run anything. Yeah. The the gun seller said he did run a background check and that nothing came up. Um, in a later statement, Jessica says that she never received an explanation for why Simon was approved in the FBI's background check system um, when he went to purchase the gun that night. Because under federal law, gun dealers can't sell guns to people subject to domestic violence restraining orders. An even bigger side note, this incident happened only two months after two teens had obtained guns in Castle Rock and gunned down their high school, killing 12 classmates and a teacher before killing themselves. Wow. So Castle Rock is under fire. Yeah. So five minutes after the police had the shootout with Simon, Jessica receives a call from Simon's girlfriend saying that she was on the phone with Simon when she heard shooting and that she was afraid something bad had happened to him and the girls. So Jessica drives to the police station and sees Simon's truck. But when she attempts to approach it, she's taken away by police to the sheriff's office. Police refused to answer any of Jessica's questions or to even acknowledge if her girls were alive or not. Oh my gosh. The police then proceeded to detain and interrogate Jessica for 12 hours. And granted, this started after 3.20 a.m. But why interrogate her? To see if she was involved. Oh gosh. Still refusing to tell Jessica if her children were alive, they questioned her as if she may have played a role in the case. Unfortunately, the media would find out about the death of the three girls before Jessica (gasps) did. Eventually, Jessica was told that her children were killed. However, they gave no other details. These details are what Jessica would end up having to seek for years to come. Jessica and her family were not allowed to identify or view the girls' bodies until the day they were laid in their caskets. Jessica stated that the children's death certificates stated no place, date, or time of death, and it made her sad to not be able to put that information on their gravestones. 
Within three weeks of the shooting, the police department disposed of Simon's truck and did not let Jessica or a third party investigate or examine the truck. And after multiple requests from Jessica to view reports of the investigation, she was continuously denied, leaving Jessica to believe that there was never an actual investigation done. Eight years after the murder, Jessica made a statement that she had yet to receive any information from the Castle Rock Police Department. So it seems to me that the police knew they messed up, Mm -hmm. right? They have this domestic violence survivor telling them nine separate times at all hours of the night that her children had been kidnapped by their father who um, had a restraining order against him, but they dismissed her each time and then come to find out that the children were murdered after their inability to even attempt to search for them. It feels like they tried to quickly sweep all of this under the rug and pretend that it never happened, Mm -hmm. but we aren't done with the story just yet. So this is where all the legal issues come up on how this came before the Supreme Court. After Jessica experienced the worst day of her life, she was determined to get some answers and hold the Castle Rock Police Department accountable for their actions. Jessica would go on a quest for almost two decades to try to get some simple answers. Who killed her children? Where did it happen? And when? Because apart from wanting law enforcement to be held accountable, a new theory arose. Mm. Was Simon responsible for their deaths, or did the children get caught in the crossfires with the police? Mm -hmm. Which would also explain why law enforcement's quick response to scrap the truck, keep the bodies from Jessica for a week, and refuse to release any investigative reports. So I will say, this theory ends right here. There's no... To this day, we don't have any answers, but the reason this theory comes up is because, you know, it's obvious that law enforcement is trying to cover up something. Either they're trying to cover up that they didn't do their jobs, you know, and they weren't searching for the girls when they were told they're with a dangerous person. Or was it because they sprayed the truck Mm -hmm. with bullets, not knowing what or who was in the truck? Obviously they killed, they had to kill Simon that they were shooting at them. That's fine. But to spray the entire truck with bullets as well. And it riddled their bodies with it. It's there's this theory where it's like, okay, did the examiner say like, oh, well, they were shot in the head, you know, they were killed in the head, or was that a cover yeah, up also? Is there she hasn't been able to get her hands on the autopsy report? The autopsy report says that they were shot in the head at close range. Mm. But other than that, they couldn't decide what time it happened. Mm-hmm. So the police during their um, air quotes investigation never were able to come up with where it happened or what time it happened. Yeah. Um, so with all these unanswered questions, it's like, okay, it sounds like Was there's a, a cover, up. cover up. What exactly is a cover up? It could go either way, mm-hmm. but something's going on, yeah. you know, for her to still not have any information of like the details like that, mm-hmm. you would think that they would have been able to find that out. And none of that exists. Wow. This is a crazy case. I'm surprised we haven't heard more about I know. it. So Jessica filed a lawsuit in the United States District Court for the District of Colorado against Castle Rock, the police department, and the three individual police officers who she had begged to help her the day of the kidnapping. The lawsuit claimed that police failed to respond properly to complaints of restraining order violations. However, a motion to dismiss the case was quickly granted. Of course. So Jessica then took her case to the Denver, Colorado 10th Circuit Court of Appeals to appeal the decision to dismiss the case. A panel of the court rejected Jessica's substantive due process claim, but did find a procedural due process claim. None of that I understand, (laughs) (laughs) but it's something. So them being able to decide that they did find that there was a procedural due process claim helped her a little bit. Move forward. Uh Uh-huh. But the court also affirmed the finding that the three individual officers had qualified immunity and as such could not be sued. 
So let's do a quick lesson on qualified immunity before we go any further, because this has been a hot topic that has been discussed a lot in this past year with the protesting with police Mm -hmm. brutality. So we're going to ease into this introduction Mm -hmm. of where qualified immunity came from and what it means. Mm -hmm. So the definition of qualified immunity is that it's a legal principle that grants government officials performing discretionary functions Immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated, quote, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. There's your reasonable person that I know you hate so much. Yeah, I hate it. So the Supreme Court first introduced the qualified immunity doctrine in the 60s in the middle of the civil rights movement, which that fact right there should Mm -hmm. tell you that there are probably a few moral issues behind the Uh idea. Maybe. (laughs) Um, So the case was called Pearson v. Ray. Uh, So in 1961, a group of priests from the Episcopal Society of Cultural and Racial Unity were taking part in the Mississippi Freedom Rides, traveling from the Deep South to the Great Lakes. As they were waiting for their bus at a terminal in Mississippi, 15 of the priests, which included three black men, entered a coffee shop to get some lunch. But as they tried to get lunch, they were stopped by two policemen, officers David Allison Nicholson and Joseph David Griffith, who asked them to leave. After refusing to leave, Captain J.L. Ray arrested and jailed all 15 priests for breach of peace, which is a misdemeanor charge for anyone who congregates with others in a public place under circumstances such that a breach of the peace may be occasioned thereby and refuses to move on when ordered to do so by a police officer. And that's exactly what it says in the law. Uh, Side note, at the time of this incident, Captain Ray already had a history of arresting more than 300 Freedom Riders for this, quote, breach of peace law. Hmm. Tracking where we're going with this? So the case was brought to trial before the local judge, James Spencer, who found them guilty of breach of peace and sentenced them to four months in jail and a $200 fine. Yeah, they sent a bunch of priests to jail for getting some lunch. But not all the other things. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Oh, (laughs) staff. Makes total sense. So they appealed it, and a new judge decided that the priests actually did not break any laws, and he dismissed the charges, thankfully. Then they filed a civil claim stating that the police and judge violated their civil rights with false arrest and imprisonment. However, the jury found in favor of the police, and on an appeal, the Court of Appeals of the Fifth Circuit found that the local judge was immune from liability for his decision. Finally, they take their civil rights case to the Supreme Court, and unfortunately, eight out of the nine judges decided that the police, and especially the judge, had immunity from this civil rights violation. They stated that, Although police officers are not granted absolute and unqualified immunity from liability for damages, they may be excused from, quote, liability for acting under a statute that he reasonably believed to be valid, but that was later held unconstitutional. So it's like at the time, they didn't believe it was unconstitutional. So because of that, They're they fine. can't be held accountable yeah. for it. So the idea of qualified immunity was originally meant to protect law enforcement officials from frivolous lawsuits in cases where they acted in good faith in unclear legal situations, which I understand that's going to happen a lot, right? If I can just imagine people upset for being caught and -hmm. they're like, oh, they violated my rights or they sue them for arresting them because they got caught. So like, I get it. That shouldn't take up the court's time. Mm -hmm. But we are now increasingly seeing this concept apply to excessive or deadly force by law enforcement, Mm -hmm. hence the recent protests this past year. 
In a 2020 Reuters report, they stated that qualified immunity, quote, has become a nearly fail-safe tool to let police brutality go unpunished and deny victims their constitutional rights. That's a little background about qualified immunity. Today, it's talked about in regards to the police brutality. In this case, it's slightly different. It's more now talking about them not doing their job. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So back to our original story. Um, In Castle Rock v. Gonzalez, the judge and the court of appeals stated that Jessica could not sue the police for violating her civil rights because they had qualified immunity. So in 2005, the case reaches the Supreme Court. But before we discuss their ruling, I want to remind you about the Violence Against Women Act that Colorado had adopted and their law that police shall use every reasonable means to enforce the restraining order. Also, the appeals court did find a procedural due process issue in this case. Keeping that in mind when we talk about the decision. Mm -hmm. So the basis of the suit was that the police violated her 14th Amendment rights to due process, which states that the government cannot deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. So the Supreme Court makes their ruling, and it was a 7-2 in favor of Castle Rock and the police officers. Can you guess who was one of the two dissenting judges? RBG? It was. Of course. (laughs) Oh, of course it was her. (laughs) The court's majority opinion by Justice Antonin Scalia held that enforcement of the restraining order was not mandatory under Colorado law. He explained that law enforcement are not obligated to uphold a restraining order, but rather they had discretion to do so. Okay. So they have the the option. Okay. (laughs) Which, in general, I understand that they have discretion to do things. Like, if they pull someone over, they have discretion to give them a ticket or not, Mm -hmm. right? They can give them a warning. All that is understandable. I'm not saying that that is not okay. I get it. Um, So Justice John Paul Stevens wrote a dissenting opinion saying that they should have made their decision based on the Colorado law of a statutory guarantee of enforcement. Because like we said, they had already had this law in place saying that law enforcement shall use every reasonable means to uphold the restraining order. Right. Um, The law says that the police shall, in quotations, it says shall, arrest if an order of protection is violated. And Scalia said, yes, Colorado has that law, but historically, we have always said that law enforcement generally have discretion, so that will be our decision. Even though the Violence Against Women Act was specifically created to get rid of law enforcement having discretion Mm -hmm. because historically, cops were not taking domestic violence victims seriously. Yes. (laughs) There's a lot of things that the law has done historically Mm -hmm. that weren't morally correct that are now illegal Mm -hmm. and so to say like okay we have this new law but historically that's not what we've done so we're just going to continue with that doesn't make any sense to me because there's been a lot of things that they did historically that weren't okay and it just keeps us from progress right progressing Progressing. yeah like you can't just say well like no historically it was done this way because we're not living in historic times we're living in present times right and a lot of things have changed right what we also learned from this decision is that when The word shall is used in law, according to Scalia, it still means it's discretionary. Now, I I looked up the definition of shall, Uh and it means to express a strong assertion or intention. It is used to say that something is expected to happen in the future, and it's used to give a command or to say that you will or will not allow something. So that's pretty... It's a command. Right. The Ten Commandments. Thou shall not kill. That doesn't mean you have discretion to kill or not. (laughs) 
right? Yeah. No, no one thinks of Shal as a, eh, it's up to you. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Do what you want. So the majority opinion said that Jessica had no legal right to police protection and that the police's failure to enforce the domestic restraining order was constitutional. And that was the end of the case. So this decision left a lot of unanswered questions because now we are truly learning that a restraining order is literally just a piece of paper. Uh-huh. Like many people often say, um, no one has to enforce it if they don't want to. So I wanted to read an excerpt from a statement that Jessica made regarding this decision. She said, I see nothing being done in Castle Rock or nationwide to make police accountable to domestic violence victims. It's like rubbing salt in my wounds. We rely on the courts and the police for protection against violence. But I learned from my tragedy that the police have no accountability. The safety of my children was of such little consequence that the police took no action to protect my babies. If our government won't protect us, we should know that. We should know that we are on our own when our lives are at risk. Had I known that the police would do nothing to locate Rebecca, Catherine, and Leslie or enforce my restraining order, I would have taken the situation into my own hands by looking for my children with my family and friends. I might have even bought a gun to protect us from Simon's terror. Perhaps if I had taken these measures, I would have averted this tragedy, but then I might be imprisoned right now. Mm -hmm. That is the dilemma for abused women in the United States. And Which we've seen over and over. That is the absolute truth. Mm -hmm. How many women are in jail right now for killing their abusers? We have cases of young girls mm -hmm. who were forced into sex, sex trafficking, trafficking and they you know, murder someone, their person who is holding them captive or whatever the case is, and they're in jail facing murder charges. And what do you, you know, what do we tell these people? Yeah. To call the police, get a restraining order, but then they have discretion to uphold that restraining order. Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. There's no protection. Mm -mm. She said at one point too, I saw a statement where she said the restraining order isn't even worth the value of the paper itself. Yeah. Or the time that you spend filing it. Mm -hmm. Another interesting outcome is that gun advocate groups use this case as an example on the importance of being able to carry protection, saying that law enforcement don't have an obligation to protect you or your family, even with a restraining order, so it's up to you to protect yourself. Which Jessica had mentioned that she had thought about that, but also she ended up advocating for stricter gun laws in regards to background checks because Simon shouldn't have been able to get one at all with mm -hmm. the restraining order on his record. Right. So this isn't where the story ends. Mm. Jessica was not satisfied with the Supreme Court decision, understandably, and she wasn't ready to give up on getting justice for her children and future children who may find themselves in similar situations. Jessica, who now went by her maiden name, Lanahan, and her legal team, including the ACLU and Columbia Law School's Human Rights Institute, filed a case against the U.S. government with the help of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Nice. Jessica was actually the first domestic violence survivor to bring a case against the United States before the international board. Jessica wrote them a letter about the case, and I want to read a portion of it again because she explains it better than anyone else can. Mm -hmm. She said, I brought this petition to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights because I have been denied justice in the United States. It's too late for Rebecca, Catherine, and Leslie, but it's not too late to create good law and policies for others. Police have to be required to enforce restraining orders or else these orders are meaningless and give a false sense of security. We need to hold the U.S. government accountable. I can't lose three children and not do something about it. This is the only way I know to make that right. 
All I can do is give this my best to try to change the system to make the world a little safer. Isn't that so So sad? sad. In a 2011 landmark decision in favor of Jessica, the commission found the U.S. was responsible for human rights violations against Jessica and her deceased children. Good for her. Mm -hmm. The Inter-American Commission on Human Rights made several recommendations for the U.S. to fix which included urging the government to make changes to laws and policies at the national, state, and local level. So with this new win, Jessica and the ACLU went on a years-long crusade to make sure these recommendations were implemented, and they met with many government officials. So here are just a couple of the positive changes this case has brought. In December 2015, the Justice Department issued a groundbreaking new guidance. It was called... Identifying and Preventing Gender Bias in Law Enforcement Response to Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault. Very long title. (laughs) Um, But it detailed how police departments should respond to domestic violence to comply with civil rights laws. Mm -hmm. Uh, Many cities across the country successfully adopted ordinances declaring freedom from domestic violence to be a fundamental human right. As it should be. Mm -hmm. In Kenya, the high court cited Jessica's case to conclude that police in Kenya had violated the human rights of 12 girls by refusing to investigate the reports of sexual assault and child abuse. So even though this case brought a lot of good, it still left a permanent black hole in Jessica's life. The trauma of losing her daughters and being re-victimized in the court system left her psychologically and physically suffering. The anxiety and stress impacted her health and her own community disowned her to where she had to move away. Yeah, she talked about how she would just be like out in the community and people would point at her and be like, oh, that's the mother. You know, you're the one that's against police. And they totally turned against her and and blamed her for bringing the issue to the court system. How dare she? Oh, my gosh. But what was worse was the damage it caused with her relationship with her surviving son. (gasps) Remember, she had a son from a previous relationship. Jesse was only 13 years old when his sisters were murdered, and he states that when the girls died, Mm -hmm. the nurturing side of his mother that he loved so much died with them. Mm. PTSD related to the murder took a toll on their relationship, and to this day, they remain emotionally and physically distant. Wow. It's a tragic murder that rippled throughout Jessica's life, but has left an imprint on domestic violence laws. So my call to action is to donate and or volunteer to the ACLU which they're going to come up so many times in a lot of our stories, I already know. Um, Your local domestic violence shelter as well, or your favorite human rights organization. The only way change is going to happen is if more people get on board with advocating and supporting people like Jessica and the laws we need. So since Jessica is part Native American and dealing with issues of domestic violence, I decided that my Amplify Corner would be a Native American activist who has been fighting for the missing and murdered Indigenous women epidemic. Rosalie is a member of the Cowlitz tribe and a student athlete. In 2019, she was a runner for her high school, and during a race, she painted a red handprint over her face, which is a symbol for the missing and murdered indigenous women. She also painted MMIW on her leg. She quickly gained international attention for her activism. Rosalie stated that growing up in public schools, she experienced a lot of sexual harassment and at one point attempted suicide. Rosalie also experienced firsthand the effects of the MMIW issue when her aunt disappeared one day. Her body would be found a year later and her death was ruled as inconclusive. Her family felt that investigators did not take this case serious as she was an indigenous woman. Rosalie now vows to spread awareness and even has a TED talk that I recommend you watch. 
Uh, Most recently, she has been advocating for an end to qualified immunity for law enforcement and government officials. So check her out on social media um, to follow her journey of activism. So that's the story of Castle Rock v. Gonzalez and how qualified immunity and law enforcement discretion affect domestic violence survivors. Hopefully we see more momentum and law changes continue, Um, but I did read that Jessica went on to go to law school so that she can help more women and provide more Mm. reform for laws. Thank you for listening. That's a crazy case. It was a really crazy case. I I don't know why I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah. Thank you, John, for bringing this to my attention. But the whole time that I was doing research on it, I was like, oh my gosh, like every case we do is extremely frustrating, mm-hmm. right? But with this one, I couldn't believe that the restraining or like the laws that are in place aren't really being upheld. Upheld, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, people keep saying like, well, just follow the law and nothing, everything will be fine. But that's not how it's it always not, works. Yeah. It, it's just not. And so when people end up shooting their abuser and then they're in jail and like, it's just this, this cycle of abuse and then injustice and there's no help. And mm-hmm. like, I don't really know where to go from here other than continually trying to to cause reform but if we stick to this case or this decision where it's discretion no matter what that's going to trump any law that comes into place when you use that word discretion Mm -hmm. like it's the whole reasonable person thing like yeah it's all so subjective that you can argue it either way you know you could say well this was discretion i Uh used my discretion on this when other people can look at that and be like no you just didn't do your job right right you know you weren't following whatever where's that line yeah you there's no way to figure out you know what boundaries get crossed when they're not doing their job or just using discretion and so now we're just finding so many women not Mm -hmm. having their voices heard or they're continuously being treated in such a way where they're not it makes accountability really difficult yes yeah and and that's what people are arguing about Mm -hmm. regarding the qualified immunity there's no accountability. Yeah. At what point is it? And it says you have qualified immunity unless they violate your constitutional rights. But then they also say, but if at the time they didn't believe that right. they were violating your constitution, then they can't. And how can you con- how can you even confirm yeah. that someone's not lying about or what was in their head at yeah. the time and what right. was going on? It's so hard. That's really frustrating. It's a mess. Yeah. So I'm glad some good things came mm-hmm. about it. Jessica's still on her journey to creating change and we wish her the best of luck on all of that. I tried to look for like where she's at right now and Mm -hmm. like where exactly like what she's doing and I couldn't find anything. Mm. Um, At one point she did create nonprofit called three peas in a pod because everyone said Mm -hmm. that the girls were three peas in a pod. Um, But it didn't look like it existed anymore. I think Mm. it was only like in the nineties. And then there's a few like memorials. There's like a bench somewhere in Castle Rock, I believe, where it says three peas in a pod in mm-hmm. memory of them. Um, but I couldn't find where she is today. So yeah. I I hope she's okay. Yeah. And I, I hope she's continuing the fight and knows that there's a lot of people that are supporting her. Mm-hmm. I know. And it's really sad that, you know, not only did she lose her three girls, but then she also kind of lost that relationship with her son. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's hard. That's really yeah. hard. There is a documentary. However, it's only available to like educators. So like colleges can pay to have the rights I guess to showcase um the documentary and so I wasn't able to find it Mm. streamed anywhere um on their website you pay like four hundred dollars to be able to I know to show it at Mm. your college Mm -hmm. or like you know in the classroom I'm sure a lot of law students um listen to it on the five four podcast that I got some of the legal information from um one of the girls had said that two of her classes they 
mm. talked about this case and they, they dissected it and the legal implications behind it. So colleges are using it more, yeah. but I wish it was open to the public because I think it's such an important story yeah. to be told. And I think it's, it, we can learn a lot from it. Um, but if you're able to get your hands on it, great. Send it our way because <laughs> I want to watch it. Yeah. Um, but her son goes on that documentary too, mm-hmm. and he discusses um, how much it's affected him and her mm-hmm. long term. Mm-hmm. So that's the case. Um, it was it was a lot to unfold. Yeah. Um, but thanks for listening. Thanks Thank for you. sticking by. Listen to the Five Four podcast because I'm totally obsessed with them now. Um, <laughs> but they have so many Supreme Court cases that are just gonna make your blood boil. Nice. If that's what you're into. <laughs> So don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. We appreciate all our listeners and your reviews help us out a lot. Follow us on social media under Unjustly Podcast and reach out to us if there's a case or a topic you want to hear us talk about, like I said earlier. So stay tuned for next week. Steph is bringing you a death penalty case with a twist Mm -hmm. and a lot of issues. A lot of issues. Yeah. So stay tuned. Don't say what it is. We don't surprise them. I won't say what it is, but it it was really fun to research and learn about. Uh Also, I was surprised I hadn't heard about it, but I think some people may remember Mm -hmm. it because it was in the 90s. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned for next week. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I was with the children at an amusing... Amusement... Shoot. Entered a coffee shop to get some lunch. I said lunch weird. (coughs) That's why it sounded weird when I said it because I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. (laughs) (laughs) No, I want to (laughs) cry. In a 2011 landmark decision in favor of Jessica, the commission... Oh, I want to cry. <laughs> Pause for Sandy's crying. The police are like, no, and the government's like, no. Shall, shall, shall. Oh, my God. <laughs> the IACHR, you know, the whole thing. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you know, whatever. You know. The International Shit. Commission for whatever. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs>